It was the summer when I turned 14. My parents had waited until I'd completed eighth grade before moving from the city into a small, single-story house out in the middle of nowhere. Instead of living next door to my best friend, who, up to that point, was close enough that we could talk to each other through the open windows of our respective bedrooms at night. The closest kid around my age now lived more than a mile away. That is, if you took a shortcut across a cornfield and waded a small stream. Otherwise, it was about a three-mile bike ride on seldom-traveled gravel roads. Dave was a year older than me, but it didn't matter any. That first summer, after my family moved, both of us rambunctious boys spent nearly every day burning off our excess energy running around the fields together, shooting our 22 rifles, and fishing in the creeks which crisscrossed the area. Dave's family was poor, much more destitute than my own. I didn't make much out of it at the time, even though he and his mom lived in a ramshackled house with a roof that had fallen in on one side, making one of the three bedrooms uninhabitable. Dave's mother simply salvaged what she could from that room, pulled the door shut, and moved on as if the room never existed. After a day spent running around the countryside, we would often end up eating dinner together, either with my family, who was happy that I'd found a playmate, or with Dave's mom, who, although poor, was one of the sweetest, kindest, most giving people I had ever met. Regardless of their poverty, she always managed to scrounge up something or other for us to eat, even if it was just a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese for dinner. We didn't care as long as it filled our stomachs so we could get back to running around outside while there was still daylight to explore. Dave's older sister, Sarah, had married several years earlier. Her husband, Donnie, was good with his hands and worked as a mechanic at the Chevy dealership in town. Donnie's pride and joy, besides his wife, was this avocado green GMC van, which he had rebuilt and fitted out with his monster stereo system. That summer, it was common for Dave's sister Sarah and her husband Donnie to stop by after he got off work with hamburgers and buns. We would sit around in lawn chairs in the front yard under the shade of two giant maple trees, talking and listening to the music which boomed out of the open doors of Donnie's van, while Donnie would sip a beer and grill up hamburgers on this rusted out charcoal grill. It was during one of these impromptu barbecues that I learned more about Dave's father, which was a topic that Dave himself avoided talking about. From what I could piece together, Dave's father had turned mean after being hired by the Erie and Ohio Railroad as a member of a short-line freight crew. That's when he started drinking and gambling and running around with his new crewmates. One sunset, I listened to Sarah Dave's sister, recount an incident where their father, who had been drinking, had slapped around their mom and was blaming her for all of his bad gambling luck. It was the last in a series of run-ins their father had before he had simply run off. Another night, while I was sleeping over at their house, Dave shared with me a worn-out, faded picture of his father, which he kept in a small wooden box along with a number of other trinkets and mementos. There, staring back at us from the past, was his dad, wearing overalls and grinning from ear to ear as he strained to hold up a giant channel catfish he had caught. It was the spitting image of what Dave would grow up to look like. One day, about halfway through July, 
Donnie and Sarah stopped by with the news that Sarah was pregnant. Everyone, Sarah, Donnie, Dave, and their mother, were all elated with the news. Then, after we had eaten our fill of hot dogs and potato chips, Donnie sat back in his chair and addressed his mother-in-law, who he affectionately called Mom. You know, Mom, Donnie began, it's going to be harder for us with the young and living in that tiny apartment we have behind the Dairy Queen. We were thinking that maybe all of us could move into a bigger place together. That is, if and we can pull together enough scratch for a deposit. Scratch. That was a word Donna used to mean money. I'm pretty settled in here, their mom said flatly. I don't want to leave this place. Scoffing, Donnie leaned forward. I can't believe that old man Brown has the gall to charge you anything to live in what's left of this place, he said, swinging his hands back and forth, motioning to the property. Well, he ain't raised my rent in years, and besides, way out here, there's no one to bother me, his mother-in-law answered. Sarah then piped in. Well, that may be so, but Donnie and I have been discussing it. We think it'd be better if you and Davy move into town with us. You can help with the baby, and we can look after you. You'd both be welcome. Me and Donnie have been looking at them new three-bedroom units right beside the park. You and Davy would each have your own bedroom, and we can afford it on Donnie's pay if we can just come up with a deposit. How are you proposing to come up with a deposit? Their mom asked. I ain't got no money to give you. You have to know that. Yes, Mom. We know you ain't got no money to be given or lending out. But you do have that Plymouth Valiant parked out in that fallen down barn out back. We was a wondering if you could let Donnie have it, Sarah answered. Let you have it? Why? That thing ain't been running years. It can't be worth anything. But no siree. That was our car. Me and your dad's. It's the only car I've ever owned, and you can't have it. Uh, come on, Mom, Sarah exclaimed. You said it yourself. That car hasn't been started in years. All the tires are flat, and I doubt that Donnie can even get it started. Why, it'll cost you money just to have that hunk of junk towed away when old man Brown finally decides to plow this place under. No, I ain't agreeing. That car needs to stay right where it is. I don't want anybody touching it, their mom said coldly. Donnie, being smart enough not to get involved, leaned back in his lawn chair, cradling his beer. After a few tense seconds of silence, Sarah spoke up in a definitive tone of voice. Well, Mom, I'm sorry, but Donnie needs to fix up that car so he can win us some money. What on earth can Donnie win with that car? Their mom replied in surprise. Sensing that it was the right time to jump in, Donnie spoke up. There's a demolition derby at the county fair. If we win that prize money, we'd have enough for the deposit on a big apartment for all of us. Even more than we need so we can buy some things for the baby. You're going to make me say it again. I don't want nobody touching my car, replied their mom. It was the only time I heard Sarah raise her voice. That's foolish, mom. It can't be worth anything to anybody. And the bumper's fallen off, the windshield's cracked, and it ain't been running years. Donnie here's a good mechanic. Let's just see if he can at least get it a running. If it needs any parts, Donnie can get them wholesale or from a junkyard. No, I'm telling you no, their mom said, shifting in her seat and crossing her arms defiantly. Then I remember Sarah standing up and pointing aggressively. Mom, I'm not going to fight you about this. We have never asked you for anything, and now we're trying to help you and Davy too, and ourselves, of course. 
Let's just see if Donnie can get that hunk of junk running. And if he does, he's going to drive her in that demolition derby. Then, Sarah walked into the house, ending the argument. As I left near twilight to make my way home, their mother continued to just sit there, arms folded, staring blankly into the cornfield. The next day, I found Dave busy cleaning the area out around the garage, which was nothing more than a falling down framework of a small barn, long abandoned. The whole place was hidden from sight about 20 yards down a gentle slope from the house. Dave and I had avoided the place because it had become the habitat of countless wasps and bees' nests, not to mention the legions of spiders who had moved in with their thick cobwebs spun across everything. By the time I had arrived, Dave had managed to chop down nearly all the stalks of horseweed and to pry open the barn door. Through it, I could see the outline of a car. It was illuminated by hazy, dusty beams of sunlight filtering down through several holes in what was left of the barn's roof. Morning, I greeted Dave, who was already dripping sweat, nodding. Dave announced almost gleefully, There she is, my mom and dad's 1964 Plymouth Valiant. The car looked as if it had been backed into the barn eons ago, and had since become encased in a thick layer of dust mixed with the occasional flake of tin metal roof which had fallen from above. As I pushed forward through some of the remaining stands of horseweed, I saw how the car's hood jutted over the headlights, which were set back into a square, angular metal frame. The whole look reminded me of an angry brow furled up over a pair of evil, menacing eyes. Wow, what a beast, I announced. Yeah, Dave readily agreed. She's a beast, all right. If Donnie can get her started, she will be hard to beat. How long has this beast been in this barn? As long as I can remember. I don't think it's been run since my daddy run off because my mom don't even have a driver's license. How long ago was that? I pried. He left right after I started first grade. That was some, uh, eight years ago. He used to take me and Sarah to school in this here car. I can remember that. After he run off, me and Sarah had to take the bus to school. Our car has been right here, waiting all that time, Dave explained before wiping the sweat from his face with a handkerchief. Hey, Dave said, breaking an awkward silence between us. Donnie told me to tell you he'd be happy if you wanted to be part of his pit crew at the demolition derby, but you're going to have to make sure your parents approve. Sure, I said. After all, what red-blooded 14-year-old boy wouldn't jump at a chance like that? That evening, Dave and I made it a point to be back on his front porch just minutes before a tow truck, with his brother-in-law Donnie and sister Sarah sitting in the passenger side, popped over a small rise just down the gravel road from their home. Hey boys, this here's Tommy, Donnie said, introducing the driver of the tow truck. We work together in the shop at Evans Ford. You all are going to be my pit crew. Are you ready to get started? Dave and I nodded excitedly where Tommy just stood there, having an idea of all the work ahead. We gobbled down a quick meal of Dairy Queen cheeseburgers and fries, which Donnie had picked up on his way over, and within 15 minutes, the four of us were down at the barn inspecting the Plymouth Valiant, the beast, as we began referring to her. Dave and I listened as Donnie and his co-worker Tommy discussed the merits and risks of pulling her out of the garage with four flat tires. Donnie pushed his way by cobwebs and was wrestling with the driver's side door. With a loud protesting screech, the door gave way and then Donnie worked his way in and sat down on a cracked, splitting vinyl bench seat. 
Push button shifter, Donnie announced as he was brushing a layer of dust off the dashboard. Can you believe that? I think I shifted her into neutral, Donnie announced. Okay, Tommy, let's hook her up and pull her out of this hole so we can take a good look at her. The two men, Donnie and his co-worker from the shop, Tommy, backed the tow truck up and, in a few minutes, began to pull the 1964 Plymouth Valiant, the Beast, from her tomb. Okay, let's leave her right here till we can get some air in them tires. We don't want to be denting any rims if we can help it, commented Tommy. Then the four of us, Donnie, Tommy, Dave, and I, just slowly moved around the car. Dave and I listened as the two mechanics began sizing up all of the problems with the beast. We'll have to fill these tires up with air and see where they need to be patched. Besides the windshield, I can see a hairline crack in the back window too, but that don't matter none since we'll be taking all the glass off her anyway. Yeah, and this here trailer hitch on the back will be a problem. The rules say you can't have anything extended beyond your bumper, remarked Tommy. Do the rules say I can have a trailer hitch? asked Donnie. Tommy stood up and answered. They don't say you can't, just that nothing can be sticking out beyond your bumper. Then, after scratching the whiskers on his chin, Tommy continued. Well, I'm supposing that there's going to be your secret weapon. What do you mean? asked Donnie. You can get that trailer hitch cut off and then fix this here bumper back over it. Then you got a battering ram back here that nobody can see easily. How do you say that I get that hitch cut off? Just cut it off yourself. You'll have to borrow that acetylene torch from the shop. I'll show you how to use it. You can do it easy enough yourself. No screwing up a job like that. Just cut her off and then put this here bumper back on over the stub. You don't have to worry about screwing up a job like that. In fact, the more you botch it, the better it'll be at tearing up any of the other cars that you back into. Is that cheating? asked Donnie. It's not in the rules, so all you got to do is pass inspection, answered Tommy. Then, after bending down for a closer look underneath the beast, Tommy continued. Besides, I expect most everybody's going for that prize money is cheating in some way or another. Rising up, Tommy asked, You got a key to the trunk? Nope. Mama said the only key that ever was is broken off in the lock. Yeah, I see it in there. Well, no matter. You'd have to weld the trunk shut anyway, along with your doors. That's all in the rules. By the time the light was getting too dim to see, the old green Plymouth Valiant had been jacked up and then lowered onto cinder blocks, and the four flat tires had been removed. Donnie and Tommy had popped the hood to make a cursory attempt at getting the engine to turn over, but nothing happened even after they had attached jumper cables. We have our work cut out for us. I'll say it now, Tommy. Thanks for being willing to help me out with this. Oh, come on, Donnie. You know you and me is alike. Ain't nothing we like better than fixing up old cars. The next evening, Donnie, Tommy, and Sarah returned with the four tires, patched and filled with air. There was also a battery salvaged from somewhere else, along with a new starter. Even though they replaced the starter and primed the carburetor with gasoline, the car engine still didn't turn over. Over the next few evenings, Donnie, sometimes alone, sometimes accompanied by his fellow mechanic Tommy, would walk down the dirt farm path and tinker with the Valiant until nightfall. By that point, Dave and I had lost interest in standing around watching the mechanics work on the beast, constantly muttering obscenities while they replaced a hose here and a belt there. After it was too dark to see, Donnie and Tommy would stroll back up to the house where Sarah would bring them out a couple of cold beers. Then the two mechanics would sit in the dark, sipping beer and discussing what to try next. One evening, 
While Dave and I were playing euchre with Dave's mom and sister, we heard a belching and coughing and then a couple of whoops as the beast finally awoke. Up the rise and out of the rows of corn came the Plymouth Valiant with Donnie behind the wheel and Tommy on the passenger side, both grinning from ear to ear. Dave's mom could only comment, I wish they would have left my car alone. Sarah, standing with their mom on the small back porch, answered, I'm sorry you feel that way, Mama. I didn't think they were going to make it. The county fair is only three weeks away. Over the next couple of weeks, we all worked at a fever pitch as all the glass was removed, the windows, the headlights, the taillights. Then one evening, Donnie put on a heavy leather bib, thick leather gloves, and a welder's helmet. He crawled under the back of the Valiant, then set to work using an acetylene torch to cut through the trailer hitch. Before he started, Donnie cautioned all of us not to watch him cut the trailer hitch off because the light from the acetylene torch could blind us. Regardless, we found it difficult not to watch the bright cascade of sparks that the torch made while cutting through the trailer hitch. When he was done and the torch turned off, Donnie took off his helmet. His skin was beating up with sweat as he announced, There, that's about it. That's our secret weapon, nodding toward the ominous-looking jagged metal post hidden underneath the chrome bumper. I stayed overnight with Dave the night before the demolition derby, which was the last day of the fair, a Saturday evening. Although we were exhausted from all the last-minute preparations, neither Dave or I got much sleep. Instead, the excitement of an afternoon at the fair, coupled with our positions as members of Donnie's pit crew, kept us up, talking late into the night. We talked about how, after Donnie won the prize money, and they had moved into one of those new apartments in town, we would still meet each other here at this dilapidated old house to spend Saturdays running around the fields and creeks like we'd been doing all summer. It's only about a 20-minute bike ride, I'm guessing, remarked Dave. And here's where we know all the best fishing spots already. Dave unexpectedly brought up how he thought his estranged father would be okay using his car in such a way even though we both knew his mom was against it. After all, he ain't been home and around to use it himself in years, and my mom can't drive, so I reckon it's a good use for it, commented Dave, right before we drifted off to sleep. The next morning, Dave and I both slept in late. By the time we had gotten up, Donnie and Tommy had eaten most of the donuts they had brought for us. Dave's sister Sarah was there too. This was going to be a family event, but their mom coldly announced, I'm not a-goin'. You all can go watch everything get all torn up if you'd like. I'm just going to stay here. Although our words put a chill in the air, that was soon swept aside when Donnie handed Dave and I our official pit crew passes, which hung around our necks on bright red lanyards. Even though the Valiant started up easily and was mechanically functional, she was far from street legal, so she would have to be towed to the demolition derby. After the beast was hitched up, Donnie held the door open to the tow truck's cab. Well, come on, you two. You're part of the pit crew. Get on up in here. The four of us, me and Dave, Donnie and Tom, all crammed into the cab of the tow truck. Sarah, alone in Donnie's van, followed us to the fairgrounds. We arrived at the fair right about noon and were immediately directed into a parking lot for the demolition derby entrance. There, the beast was unhitched and inspected and then parked alongside the other entrance. It was clear she was going to be the oldest car in the Derby, sitting among a couple of newer but beat-up Chevy Novas, a Pontiac GTO, a Ford LTD. There was also a big Country Squire station wagon with fake wood paneling and a square 
lifted up Plymouth Duster, along with three Chevy Pintos. It was a motley assortment of cars, all of which had seen better days. After the beast had passed inspection, Dave and I had six hours to run around the county fair and spend the $20 my dad had given me. Per Donnie's orders, we had to be back at the demolition derby check-in parking lot by 7 p.m. so that we could be ready by 8 when the derby was scheduled to begin. By the time we'd returned to the staging lot, after having our fill of carnival rides and games and eating hot dogs and cotton candy, we saw how the fair crew had transformed the adjacent farm animal show pen into a crater. It had a four-foot-high rim of dirt around a flat bottom, and concrete barriers had been placed strategically around the oval. Donnie was nervous, as were the drivers for the other cars. Most were dressed in typical farm wear, jeans and t-shirts, but each had to wear a crash helmet. Donnie's was a red, white, and blue speckled motorcycle helmet he had borrowed. Everyone was tense, anxious, and ready. Dave and I took our places along the top of a berm with Tommy, right in front of the grandstands, which were filled to capacity. I could feel the crowd's anticipation of the spectacle about to unfold. Tommy explained everything that was going on to Dave and I. See how they're spraying down that dirt with water? We both nodded. It's not to make it muddy, but to cut down on the dust. Now, if and you see one of them cars coming up this here berm, you make sure you hightail it over and behind one of these concrete barriers behind us. These cars ain't got enough room to get up any real speed, but they can hurt you nonetheless, he said. We both nodded again in understanding. As the entrants were driven into the ring, one by one, cheers erupted from the crowd. The PA blared out each car's name and the name of the driver. We all whooped and hollered when Donnie drove in the Beast, which took its place in a line of cars, all backed up rear to rear to each other down the center of the ring. Then, with a loud blow from an air horn, the demolition derby began. At first, everything looked as if it was happening in slow motion. It looked comical as some cars immediately backed into others and some cars sped forward trying to break free and get some distance from the tangled heap of metal in the center of the ring. Then cars would shift into reverse, and with an arm over the back seat, the driver would attempt to get up some speed and ram into a competitor with their back ends. The better drivers maneuvered and swerved to protect their vital engines as clouds of smoke and dust began to mingle with the sounds of collision after collision. The first cars to be disabled were the Pintos. All three of them were crushed nearly immediately, their drivers having to raise a white flag out their window to signal their capitulation. On the far side, Donnie was maneuvering in reverse, backing into the Plymouth Duster at high speed, ramming it on the front corner of the passenger side, causing the Duster's hood to pop up. But once Donnie began pulling away, the Duster spun out after him. Donnie tried to get away from the Duster, but as he swerved, the beast was hit square by the big Ford LTD, which buckled under the rear fender of the Valiant. As the LTD pulled away, the beast was squealing loudly, but only moving at a crawl. I could see Donnie furiously pushing the shift buttons, trying to break free of whatever was slowing the beast down. But all he could manage to do was to move forward and backwards a few inches in an awkward, rocking motion. The LTD, for some reason, was billowing clouds of white steam from under the hood, where it stood only a few feet away from the Valiant. After a square hit from one of the Novas, the driver of the LTD hoisted up his white flag above. In a matter of minutes, all that was left was Donnie and the Beast and the two Novas, a red one and a black one. The Beast was now able to move more than a few inches, 
but she was limping across the ring at a snail's pace. The two Novas took their time and lined up on either side of Donnie, clearly targeting the Valiant for a coup de grace. After hesitating for a few seconds, the two Novas shifted into reverse and in unison, backed into Donnie from opposite directions at high speed, crushing the Plymouth Valiant's rear panels on both sides almost simultaneously. The back end of the beast seemed to be able to absorb the blow, but the trunk popped open. Donnie and the beast could barely move, but he still hadn't hoisted his white flag. Looking around, Donnie could see that the two Novas were now lining up to hit him again. We all watched as Donnie shook his head reluctantly before raising his white flag in defeat. Then the Red Nova hoisted his flag and the demolition derby was over. All of the pit crews leaped over the barriers and sprinted over to their respective car and driver. We did the same. When we reached Donnie, he was hyperventilating, breathing deeply and heavily. He tried to shout something at us. At first, we couldn't understand him. Tommy climbed up on the battered and bent hood and pulled Donnie through the front window, out of the bones of the beast. There, sitting on the hood, after taking off his red, white, and blue helmet, Donnie exclaimed, They were cheating, addressing Tommy. Did you see that? Did you see how them two Novas were working together? Yeah. Yeah, I did, agreed Tommy while nodding his head. They were working together. You hurt anywhere? No, just my pride's bruised. Well, you just sit up there and catch your breath. When you're ready, we'll look her over and see if there's anything left to salvage. After a few minutes, Donnie slid off the hood, and he and Tommy began inspecting the remains of the beast, starting with the engine. The engine's still running good, explained Donnie. I just couldn't get her to move. Well, she took quite a shot from that LTD, and those hits from them Novas took out your rear wheels. But I bet it's the tranny, replied Tommy. All of us continued to slowly circle the car, pointing out each ding which glanced off her body until we came to the trunk. That was a hell of a shot she took to pop that trunk open, commented Tommy. We couldn't even pry that trunk open when we first got her out of that barn. Then, suddenly, all of us stopped cold in our tracks as we rounded the back end and could see inside the trunk of the Plymouth Valiant. Nobody said anything. Even the noise of the crowd exiting the stadium vanished. We just stood there and stared, absorbing the gravity of what we were looking at, trying to process it, trying to make sense out of it. The first thing I saw was a rib cage with tatters of a rotting plaid lumberjack shirt still clinging to the bones. I hesitated before moving closer. Then once I inched forward, up next to Dave, who was still transfixed on the contents of the trunk, I could see a leg bone sticking out of a rotting boot. Then, there in the back, wedged in a crease of the metal car frame was a skull. A skull wearing the remains of a hog head hat, just like the one I saw in the only photo Dave had showed me of his father.